the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park. Online at Let's Talk Faith.com. A service of the same portions of this hour have been pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. If you're still making excuses for your sin, still blaming others, seeing yourself as the victim, toning down your behavior, at least your way of expressing it, so that it doesn't appear as as bad as it really is, then you have not repented. Regardless of how much remorse and how many regrets you have. Car insurance companies get some great excuses from their clients sometimes, don't they? Here are a few that I enjoyed reading about. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. The other car collided with mine without warning me of its intention. As I reached an intersection, a hedge sprang up, obscuring my vision. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and handed over the embankment. (laughs) The pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran over him. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. (laughs) And here's my favorite. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I like those excuses. But the excuses we make for sin, hmm, not so much. We all have an urge to avoid blame for our transgressions. That's a really bad idea. Hi, welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're studying genuine repentance and learning about it from King David's experience as he finally came to his senses about a year after his adultery with Bathsheba and his murderous attempt to cover it up. As we've seen in previous Verse by Verse programs, the first mark of real repentance is an honest admission of guilt. The second indication is a desire to forsake that sin. Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 51. Here's Pastor Steve with today's study. In his commentary on the Psalm, Steve Lawson writes about the time many years ago when the London Times, a newspaper, ran an editorial entitled, What's Wrong with the World Today?, in which the writer wrote about the various ills, both social as well as moral ills, afflicting the world of his day. And in this editorial... The reporter asked for a response from his readers as to what they thought was wrong with the world. Well, one of those who responded was the well-known writer and philosopher G.K. Chesterton, who simply wrote these words, Dear Editor, what's wrong with the world? I am faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. He was absolutely right. Each of us is the problem. More specifically, 
Our sin is what's wrong with the world. And one man who would heartily agree with that assessment was David, the king of Israel. More than most men, David understood the devastating effects of his own sin and the problems that his sin created, not only for himself but for others. At the very pinnacle of David's ministry as king, He committed a grievous sin of engaging in adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, and then after learning that she was pregnant with his child, made certain that her husband was killed in a military battle. You remember the story from 2 Samuel, where David told Joab, his general, make sure Uriah the Hittite is at the front of a battle, and then have everybody retreat. He essentially murdered Uriah the Hittite. And for a year after this incident, David told no one about what he had done. And he thought he had successfully covered up his sin until one day God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David, expose his cover-up. And instantly the king was convicted of his sin. Instantly. And in repentance and confession of his guilt, David began to earnestly seek God's forgiveness. And out of his heart cry of repentance, he penned Psalm 51, which is a record of his repentance. And what he does in that psalm is he models for us from his own experience of repentance what genuine repentance looks like. It's a good thing that David did that because as I've told you a number of times over the last few weeks, there are many false views that people hold today about repentance, with the primary one being that repentance simply means a change of your mind, changing your mind about what you've done, feeling some remorse over your sin. Now, certainly a change of mind and remorse and sorrow for sin, that's all a part of repentance, But we know that there has to be more. We know that that can't be all there is to repentance because Judas Iscariot changed his mind about betraying Jesus. And Judas felt so remorseful over what he had done that he gave back the money he had received for his treachery. And then he went and took his own life. But he never repented of his sin. It wasn't repentance. So because repentance is such a meaningful, significant important biblical truth, I've decided that it would be helpful for us to just work our way unhurriedly through Psalm 51 in order to identify the various marks or features or characteristics of true repentance revealed in David's personal experience. And so up to this point, folks, we have identified two of those marks. Number one, true repentance is marked by an honest admission of guilt. In the first nine verses of this psalm, David emphasizes how guilty he knows he is before God. Because he is guilty, we see him crying out to God for one thing, and that is forgiveness. He uses some very strong language, some very vivid words and expressions to convey how serious he was, how sincere he was about this. So we hear David, for example, pleading with God to blot out his transgressions. To wash him thoroughly from his iniquity. To purify him with with hyssop, which as we discovered last Sunday, speaks of a blood atonement. And the reason David is so earnest about seeking God's forgiveness is because he knows the hideousness 
of what he's done. God has convicted him and he refuses to hold back from condemning himself before God in confession of his sin. In these verses, David very humbly admits his guilt. He blames his actions on no one but himself. He even acknowledges that his problem of sin goes far deeper than what it may appear to be. Far deeper than his outward actions. He says in verse 5 that he was brought forth in iniquity, he says, and in sin his mother conceived him. And we went over this last week, but I remind you, he means that from the very first moment of his existence at conception, he was infected with a fallen nature, a sin nature that permeated every part of his being so that the, the bent and the inclination of his heart has been to just disobey God. And that's why he's saying this, because it's his explanation why he sinned with Bathsheba and against her husband. In other words, he sinned in his actions because he is a sinner by nature. It's exactly what he is saying. Now, in saying this, we need to understand that David is not using his fallen nature as an excuse for his sin. He's not justifying what he did because he just couldn't help himself from sinning since that's the natural bent of his heart. That's not what he's saying at all. No, David is just acknowledging how deep his problem with sin really goes and where his sin with Bathsheba and her husband came from. He's telling God, admitting it, that's the source of it. That's the source of it. He attributes it to his fallen nature. Now, This is what true repentance looks like. If your confession of sin doesn't resemble David's, then it is not true repentance. If you're still making excuses for your sin, still blaming others, seeing yourself as the victim, toning down your behavior, at least your way of expressing it, so that it doesn't appear as as bad as it really is, then you have not repented. Regardless of how much remorse and how many regrets you have. But David did repent. And having honestly admitted that what he did with Bathsheba and her husband were wrong and they were wicked. And having asked God to forgive him for his past actions. David now moves on in his prayer of repentance to speak about his behavior in relation to his future actions. He spoke about his past, now he moves on to his future, and in doing so, he gives us a second mark of genuine repentance. He tells us that in addition to repentance being marked by an honest admission of guilt, true repentance, he says, is marked by a desire to forsake sin and to walk in holiness. He says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now last week we only had time to look at this one verse as we entered into this new section. New really paragraph, if you will, of Psalm 51. But it introduced us to a a different thought that David is now making about repentance. And that new thought is this. When someone is truly repentant, they desire to start living in a way that honors the Lord with their obedience to him. In other words, they not only long to be forgiven for what they've done in the past, but they desire a consistent life of holy behavior in the present as well as the future. 
You can see very easily that this is David's heartfelt desire. In verse 11, he asks God, or verse 10, to create a clean heart inside of him, meaning that he wants to be spiritually renewed with new thoughts, godly thoughts, godly longings. And in connection with this renewal, he asks God, and this is important, for a steadfast spirit. That's to say he, he wants a resolute unwavering attitude of heart. Why? So that he won't give in to temptation. So he won't vacillate in his behavior. In other words, he wants some consistency in his walk with the Lord so that he won't fall back into sin, especially the sin that he's now so earnestly repenting of. See, when God works in a believer's heart, convicting of sin, bringing about this desire to repentance. And the Bible says that like faith, repentance is a gift from God. We're responsible for it, but it is God's gift. The Bible says he grants repentance. When he does that, included in our admission of guilt is a longing in our hearts to forsake sin, to do everything necessary to avoid falling back into our sin. This is what all true repentance, folks, what it looks like. This is what it should look like in your life. There should be a desire in you to forsake the sin you are now confessing, as well as a longing in your heart to to just start afresh, to start obeying God. Otherwise, without this, it just isn't true repentance. As bad as you might feel, about what you've done. It's not true repentance. The noted great English evangelist, George Whitfield, issued this strong warning to those who claimed to be interested in repenting, but were hesitant to forsake their sin. Here's what Whitfield said. Abhor thy sinful course of life and serve God in holiness and righteousness all the remaining part of life. If you lament and bewail past sins and do not forsake them, your repentance is in vain. You're mocking God, deceiving your own soul. You must put off the old man with his deeds before you can put on the new man, Christ Jesus. So I ask you, are you mocking God? Are you mocking God by, as Whitfield said, bewailing past sins without having any intention of forsaking them? That would be a mockery of God. If so, then you need to repent and repent of your pretense to repent. Get serious about your sin. Turn from it. That's exactly what David did, expressing in his prayer this this great desire of his heart to forsake his sin, to walk in holiness. And as we move on in the psalm, we we see how, how serious David was about this by the very next request he makes in verse 11. He says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, frankly, this statement by David has troubled many people, unnecessarily, but it's troubled many people over the years because they're afraid that David might be saying that a believer can lose their salvation. In other words, they're concerned that David is saying that his sins of adultery and murder were so gross and so wicked that God just decided to cast him off forever. And he removed the Holy Spirit from dwelling in him. And so the concern by some is that if it's possible for David to lose his salvation over those sins, and they're afraid that it's possible for them 
to lose their salvation because certainly in their hearts, if not physically, they've done the same things that David did and maybe even worse. Now, if, if this is what David means by asking God not to cast him away from his presence and not to take the Holy Spirit from him, then it is a frightening thought. In fact, there's nothing more frightening, nothing more terrifying than the thought of being forsaken by God to an eternity of endless judgment and wrath. I can think of nothing more terrifying than that. But folks, take heart. That is not what David is saying. In fact, this statement couldn't possibly be a declaration that David feared losing his salvation. And I'll tell you why. There are two reasons. Number one, because it is an illogical conclusion to make from David's words. Completely illogical. You see, the fact that David is praying that God would not cast him away and remove his spirit from him proves that he still has salvation. It proves that he still has the Holy Spirit. Look, if David's sins of adultery and murder had caused him to lose his salvation, there would have been no point in him praying that he wouldn't lose his salvation because he would have lost it already. Remember, David had covered up his sin for about a year before he repented. So if God didn't cast him away during that entire year of unrepentant sin, then he certainly wasn't going to cast him away now that he was repenting. That's why I say it is completely illogical to draw the conclusion from his words that David is now praying that God won't remove salvation from him. It's not what he's saying. It's an illogical conclusion. Secondly, David couldn't possibly be praying about losing his salvation because that would be a contradiction with the clear teaching of Scripture that God gives us salvation forever, never takes it back, and therefore no true believer can ever be lost. Look, there cannot be a contradiction in the Bible because God is the author of all Scripture. Now, we don't have the time to mention all the verses, and there are many many verses that teach the doctrine of the security of the believer, but at least a few of them I can share with you that are unquestionably clear. John chapter 10, starting verse 27, I don't know how Jesus could have made it any clearer than than he did with these words. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. They'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, as I said, I don't know how it could be communicated in any clearer language than that. John six thirty seven. our Lord said, all that the Father gives me, meaning all those who are the elect, will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I'll never cast them out. So when David says, cast me not from your presence, our Lord answers, I will never cast any whom the Father has given to me out. Romans 8.1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning believers. But here's something that is precious, and we don't emphasize it enough, the, the true meaning in the context of what Paul is saying. All of Romans 8 is really given to teach us the security of the believer. 
Paul starts with that. Verse 1, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He ends chapter 8 by saying, who or what will separate us from the love of God? And he mentions some things that people might think of. But in Romans 8, 28, Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now think about that. If all things are working together for the good of a believer, that would include even sin. Now Paul's not commending sin, but he is saying that God is so sovereign that he will use everything in life, even our sin or the sins of others, to make us more like Christ, which he'll go on to say. Now, if everything works together for good, then we can't lose salvation because that's bad. All things are working together for good. How could you lose your salvation if God is using even your sin to work together for good? And then Paul goes on to say, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. If you've trusted Christ, your destiny is is to become conformed to the image of Christ, not go to hell. And then Paul goes on to say, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And listen to this. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, you and I are not glorified people. Not yet. But Paul speaks of it as if it's already happened because it's so certain. That's the security we have. And then just one other, Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If Paul is confident, I am too. So if by his request that God would not cast him away and remove the Holy Spirit from him, David wasn't referring to losing his salvation. The question is, then what was he referring to? What do these words mean? Listen closely. What David is concerned about isn't the loss of his salvation, but rather the loss of God's power in his life to live a godly life. A life of victory over sin. The loss of God's enabling grace to obey him. See, it's important to understand that in Old Testament times, believers were not permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Christians are today, but... Old Testament believers were not. Only since the beginning, the inauguration of the church on the day of Pentecost, have believers experienced the ongoing, continuous indwelling of the Holy Spirit, never to leave us, never to depart from us. Shortly before he died, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 17, that the Holy Spirit will abide with you and will be in you. In other words, when the Spirit comes... He will remain with you as he lives inside of you. That's why the Apostle Paul told the Christians at the church at Rome, if anyone, he said, does not have the spirit of Christ, then he doesn't belong to the Lord. Because all, meaning this, all true believers do have the spirit of Christ. And as you'll recall, Paul also told the Corinthians, who were a notoriously sinful congregation, that their bodies were the temple of the Holy Spirit. So for church-age believers like us, it's not possible for the Holy Spirit to depart from us. Not possible for us to lose salvation or to lose him. But in the days prior to the establishment of the church during Old Testament times, believers, as I said, were not permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit as we are, but rather, here's how it worked. 
The Spirit of God would come upon certain individuals at certain times in their lives in order to equip and empower them to carry out important tasks and ministries. What a tremendous advantage modern believers have compared to the Old Testament believers. We have the Holy Spirit always ready to help us. And we have the complete scriptures, including the unambiguous record of what Jesus actually did for us on the cross. And yet we still tend to wander from God, don't we? We still need to confess and to repent. I'm glad you could join us today for Verse by Verse and our current series on true repentance. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our leader for these daily studies. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Stop in some Sunday if you're close by. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. Service times are on the website, lakesidechapel.com. Or you can call 727-441-1714 for information. That's 727-441-1714. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside. Find out more at versebyverseradio.org. The most popular link by far on the website is the Message Archive link. You can stream or download any of the hundreds of previous broadcasts from that page. As I mentioned, we are listener-supported, so if you would like to help us continue airing these Bible classes of the air, click on the giving link to find out how to do so easily and securely online. Or call Lakeside at 727-441-1714. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.